You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Today is Wednesday, the 23rd of September. And here's your quarantine tip of the day. If you're having trouble finding a babysitter who's willing to come to your house in the middle of a pandemic, don't stress. Just put a scarecrow on top of a Roomba. Yeah, that way you have someone to watch your kids and you'll finally get rid of those damn crows in your house. Lazy ass crows, you haven't paid rent in three months. <laughs> anyway, on tonight's show, dead storms are coming back to life. Donald Trump has a plan to win the election even if he doesn't. And Dulce Sloan tells us why police brutality is coming out of your paycheck. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with the weather report. Spoiler alert, you might want to lock yourself inside again. As if 2020 wasn't enough, we now have zombie tropical storms. This is video from when Hurricane Paula hit Bermuda earlier this month. It was downgraded to a post-tropical low-pressure system, but Paula regained strength and became a tropical storm again on Monday. It's now about 300 miles off the coast of the Azores Islands. Oh, zombie storms? Man, the weather has truly figured out how to mess with us now. Storms used to hit us and then be gone. But now it's like, all right, I'm done, I'm done. I'm back, gotcha, bitch. It feels like mother nature realizes that America isn't taking coronavirus seriously. So she just keeps coming up with new ideas to keep people in their homes. You know, giant wildfires, storms that don't die. Pretty soon, when we open the front door, there's just gonna be a tree who kicks us back in the house. Get your ass back in there. At the same time though, can we acknowledge that a zombie storm is just a storm that lost pressure and then regained it. It's only exciting because the weather people try to jump on the 2020 sucks bandwagon and give it a scary name. But I mean, you can make anything sound scary that way. Oh, it's not morning dew, it's zombie condensation. Moving on to New York City. The concrete jungle where dreams are made of. Oh, that's weird. Why am I getting a call from Alicia Keys' lawyer? The pride of New York City has always been its mass transportation system. The city has one of the world's oldest, largest, and greatest subway and bus systems. But it turns out there's always room for improvements. Today, the MTA will vote on a new rule that really should have been an old one. It will ban defecating on the city's subways and buses and inside transit facilities. Right now, rules mandate $100 fines for creating a nuisance or unsanitary conditions on public transit, but the MTA feels we need to be more specific about what is and is not a toilet. Wait, pooping on the subway is only getting banned now? That's insane. Here I was getting all angry when people used to do that. Turns out they were just obeying the rules. And look, I don't wanna make broad generalizations here, but I'm willing to bet that if you're taking a shit on the subway, you don't have $100. Like, do they really think that giving out fines is how they're gonna solve this problem? Because, I mean, I'm not a genius, but I'm pretty sure nobody who has a toilet at home and who isn't mentally ill is taking a dump in the subway. It's not like Wall Street bankers are on their Bluetooth like, I'm telling you, Barry, I crushed that trade, but hold on, hold on. I gotta jump on the sixth train real quick and pinch off a loaf. All I'm saying is, 
I don't think the main reason people were pooping on the subway was because it's free. In fact, if anything, fining people for pooping on the subway could backfire. People are gonna start shitting on the subway just to flex how rich they are. People are just gonna be like, yeah, that's right, baby. I got that subway poop money. Bam. But let's change the subject to the continuing impact of the Black Lives Matter movement. Already we have seen police departments forced to accept reforms, statues of Confederate leaders toppled, and problematic syrup poured out. And now, another outdated brand is getting a makeover. New this morning, Uncle Ben's Rice products are getting a new name, Ben's Original. The logo depicting a Chicago head waiter is also being dropped. The new branding will have the same blue font and orange packaging and will hit the shelves in 2021. The changes come amid a broader movement about racial equality. In June, the companies that make Uncle Ben's and Jemima Cream of Wheat and Mrs. Butterworth said they would retire or rebrand their products. Ben's Original? Who the hell is Ben? I don't wanna get rice from some stranger I don't know. I only trusted the other guy because he was my uncle. Like, I get that they wanted to change the name because some people didn't like the connotations, but surely they could have replaced uncle with another family title, you know, to make us comfortable. Could have been nephew Ben or cousin Ben or your mom's special friend Ben who she wrestles with while you play with your toys in the other room. Yeah, I know he's making sex with my mom, but his rice is dope. Now, personally, I think it's a good thing that brands are re-examining their mascots. And while we're at it, can we please rename Chester Cheetah? Yeah, because that's an African animal, okay? And as an African, I've never known a cheetah named Chester in my life. So Cheetos, it's time to change it to Batandwa Cheetah. That sounds more real to me. But while it's great that some products are changing their packaging to be less offensive, let's not pretend that this is the worst manifestation of racism in America. I mean, what's really holding black people back is stuff like this. The CEO of Wells Fargo under fire for comments he made about the bank's lack of diversity. Reuters reports that Charles Scharf blamed it on, quote, a limited pool of black talent to recruit from during a Zoom call this summer. And then he repeated it in a memo in June. Mr. Scharf has reportedly promised to double the number of African-American employees in key positions by 2025, already adding two people. Mr. Scharf isn't the only one facing criticism. The Post is reporting that five recent executives hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, CEO Jamie Dimon, they were all white. Okay, okay. This is an interesting dilemma. Wells Fargo say that they want to hire more black talent, but they also say there's just not enough black talent in finance to hire from, which is weird because every day thousands of black graduates are trying to get into finance. Maybe they're missing each other on the train. They should take out one of those ads. If you're not hiring black people, it's because you don't give a shit. Don't be like, it's because you can't find them. How hard are you actually trying? Hey guys, do you see any black people to hire? Yeah, neither do I. All right, we're gonna go with Chad. And you know, one of the things that gets me about this story is this. Wells Fargo can't find black people to hire, according to them, right? But whenever Wells Fargo is searching for black people to exploit, oh, then they never seem to come up short. They've been sued for charging black and brown people higher interest rates in Sacramento and Philadelphia and Miami and Baltimore. They found black people then. I mean, whoever found those black people to exploit, just have them look for black people to hire because I mean, clearly they know where the black people are at and Wells Fargo might be in the news, but they're not the only ones making this excuse. You hear it all the time. Companies want to hire black talent. They just can't find it. But the truth is it's all about your hiring practices. 
Tons of companies rely on their employees to recommend new people for them to hire, which is natural, right? But the problem is, if your company is already predominantly white, there's a good chance that the people your employees recommend are also gonna be other white people because, you know, the only people they know are gonna be white. I mean, look at The Office, right? Yeah, the show, The Office. Think about it. If Michael Scott asked his employees for referrals on a new hire, how many of these people are gonna have a black friend to recommend? You think Toby does? Angela? Dwight? You think Dwight has a black friend? You guys are playing games. Dwight doesn't even have human friends. These people don't have any black friends. The only black friend they have is Stanley, and he already works there. Look, here's the truth of the matter. If companies want to hire black people, they will find a way to make it happen. They can start apprenticeship programs. They can start getting people trained into the positions that they want to hire them for. They can give them a shot, the same way they gave many white guys a shot. This was the same argument that companies had with women back in the day. Oh, but women are just not qualified. Where do you find a woman? They're all in the kitchen. If you want to make it happen, you can make it happen. And don't tell me it's because black people aren't in finance. Black people love finance. And I'm not just talking about like graduates. I'm just talking about black people in general. You ever watched a rap video? Those people counting more money than you've ever seen in your life. So what do you think makes you qualified to work in this bank? I got my mind on my money and my money on my mind. Oh, you're hired. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll talk about why November 3rd might just be the start of this year's election. Stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. There are now just 41 days until election day, which means there are now just 42 days until everyone starts fighting over who won. So let's take a look at the post-election cluster that awaits us in our new segment, Votegasm 2020, Ballot Royale. On a normal election night, the story is predictable. The votes are counted, cable news paints the states red or blue, a winner is declared, and a loser calls the fireworks company to see if they can get a refund. But this year, thanks to the coronavirus pandemic, more people than ever will be voting by mail. And because those mail-in ballots will take days or even weeks to count, It means that it might be a while until we know who actually won the election, which according to the FBI means we better buckle up. A new warning from the FBI, just 41 days before election day, the bureau says foreign actors and cyber criminals could exploit the time required to certify and announce election results by disseminating disinformation that includes reports of voter suppression, cyber attacks, targeting election infrastructure, voter or ballot fraud, and other problems intended to convince the public of the election's illegitimacy. The announcement also alerts that, quote, the increased use of mail-in ballots due to COVID-19 protocols could leave officials with incomplete results on election night, adding that foreign actors and cyber criminals could exploit the time required to certify and announce the election's results. The Bureau encourages voters to be patient with slow results. It says Americans should verify information through multiple reliable sources and think twice before sharing unverified material on social media. Really, FBI? That's your advice? Be patient and don't share unverified information on social media? Do you know us? We're not gonna do any of that shit. The day after the election, the most viral post on Facebook will be that George Soros paid Jeffrey Epstein's ghost to vote for Joe Biden. But yes, the FBI says 
that foreign enemies will try to spread disinformation to undermine the election while the votes are being counted. Though if they really wanna mess with the vote counting, I hope they don't do that thing of just shouting out random numbers. That's gonna throw America off. I mean, it gets me every time when I'm counting. 61 million for Biden. 24. 61 million and one for Biden. 143, 3,074. Oh, gotta start again. One for Biden, two for Biden. So yes, there is a real threat that America's foreign adversaries will latch onto the fact that many votes won't come in until after election day. And then what they'll try and do is use that to convince voters that the election results aren't valid. But while the FBI is warning America about foreign adversaries spreading disinformation after the election, there's already a pretty major domestic adversary who's been doing it for weeks. I'm very worried about mail-in voting because I think it's subject to tremendous fraud and being rigged. I want to see the results of the election on November 3rd. And by the way, if it's anything like these other events, it could go on forever. And they're allowed to count votes until seven days after the election. Are we going to wait a week after November 3rd if it comes down to Nevada, which it could very well? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think it's appropriate. It's going to be the greatest fraud in the history of elections. The only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. Remember that. Yes. We don't need to wait for Russia to undermine America's election because America's president is already doing it himself. I guess he is bringing back foreign jobs to the US after all. I mean, if Trump isn't working with Russia on this, then the Russians must be really confused. Dimitri, did you tell Trump to say that? Me? Yet. I thought maybe you told him. Why would he undermine his own democracy? Maybe he's just really strange guy. And as for the idea that Americans can't wait one week to find out who's gonna be in charge of the country, I'm sorry, guys. I don't agree with that at all. America's used to waiting a long time to get results. I mean, we've been doing it for coronavirus tests for months now. You know, it's actually funny how when it comes to election results, Trump is like, Americans can't wait this long for important information. But then when you ask about his tax returns, it's like, we can't rush this delicate process. We gotta be accurate but it's been four years. That's because it's hard to count to a jillion. Now, here's the thing. Because this is 2020 and everything is a nightmare, it turns out that Trump doesn't even need to prove that mail-in ballots are invalid in order for him to snatch the election away. Yeah, all he needs to do is prolong the fight over it. According to a terrifying new report in The Atlantic, the Trump campaign is discussing plans to drag out the final vote count in swing states for 35 days. And the reason they wanna do that is because that's the point at which the states are constitutionally required to certify electors. And that means that if there's no decision by that time, Trump can just ask the state legislators to set aside the popular vote and choose the winner for themselves. And since the legislators in most swing states are run by Republicans, guess who they're gonna pick? So once again, Donald Trump is the black light on America's democracy. Thanks to him, everyone is now seeing how America's system relies on good faith in order to succeed. It's basically the please only take one Halloween candy of democracy. Yeah, it works in theory, but all you need is one asshole five-year-old to come in. Now, is Trump gonna get away with any of this? Well, it's never been tried before, so ultimately that's gonna be up to the Supreme Court, which is exactly what Donald wants. 
The president says he needs to move quickly to name her replacement so the full court can hear any cases that come up from the November election. We need nine justices. You need that. Uh, with the unsolicited millions of ballots that they're sending, it's a scam, it's a hoax. Everybody knows that. And the Democrats know it better than anybody else. So you're going to need nine justices up there. It's a very serious problem. And the Democrats know what they're doing is wrong. And all they want to do is go forward with it. So I think you're going to need the nine justices. The one thing I'll always appreciate about Donald Trump is that he doesn't try and make us work to figure out his evil plan. You know, because other world leaders are coy. You never know what they're thinking. Because Vladimir Putin is like, Crimea. I don't have any plan for Crimea. Maybe Crimea has planned for itself. Meanwhile, Trump is out on the streets like, then I'm gonna blow open the door and break open the safe. Then I'm gonna wipe my prints off and I'm gonna hide it on the floorboards in Mar-a-Lago. And that's how I plan to steal all the Halloween candy. So look, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. This is a dangerous situation that America finds itself in. But there are two flaws in Donald Trump's plan. One is that even the justices that he put on the Supreme Court could end up ruling against him. And based on how many people Trump's hired that end up hating him, that could actually happen. The second flaw in Trump's plan is that if people come out to vote against him in high enough numbers, the results will be so clear and resounding that there will be no way he can challenge them. And so basically what I'm saying is, Donald Trump is trying to grab the election by the pussy and America needs to pull a Melania and slap that tiny hand away. Okay, we gotta take a quick break, but don't go away because Bob Woodward is gonna be on the show and we're gonna ask him what it's like to interview Donald Trump for nine hours. That's right, nine hours. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. As the news today about Breonna Taylor reminds us, police violence seems to be a fact of American life. And as we consider the lack of indictments against most of her killers, It's important to remember that even when police officers don't pay for their own misconduct, all of us do. Dulce Sloan filed this report. America has finally woken up to the problem of police brutality. Sure, they hit the snooze button for the last few decades, but better late than never. But there is one giant problem. Almost half of white people still think the police are doing an excellent job using the right amount of force. Well, half of white people, it's time to change your mind. And since you weren't moved by this, or this, the taser. or this, I'm gonna leave emotions out of it and stick to the numbers because I'm dual stage loan and you can count on it. To all those fiscally responsible Americans who vote with their wallet, it's time to learn some hard truths about how police brutality is affecting your bottom line. Today, I've enlisted the help of Maurice BP Weeks from the Action Center on Race and the Economy to find out the real costs of police brutality. I mean, the human cost is that there are people who are just long-term traumatized in communities, so. No, 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 no. That is up, but I'm talking about the money. You know, dinero, cheddar, coins, okay? How much does it cost? So in a city like Chicago, in a 10-year period, like $700 million worth of settlements. What? And all of that money is, is paid by taxpayers. I'm then paying to get my ass whooped by the cops? Technically, yes. That's like getting hit by a car and then finding out that you bought them the car and then you had to pay to get the car fixed. Yeah. Is there like a line item in the police budget for settlements? 
It's in the city's budget. But why isn't it in the police department's budget? I mean, maybe then other officers would step in and be like, hey man, listen, we only get five ass weapons allocated to each officer a month, and you about to go over. The problem is cities look at the police budget as a third rail that they can never, ever cut, no matter what. The police commit so many acts of misconduct, they often exceed that budget line item. In Chicago, for instance, for basically every year from 2010 to 2017, they exceeded the budget line item for settlements. Did you hear that, my fiscally minded friends? In 2018, Chicago spent more than $113 million on settlements, over five times more than the city budget for police lawsuits. That's like paying out a lawsuit every two days. That's 5,000 Kia Sorrentos. How are we paying for this? The city might choose to pay the settlement using a bond instrument, for instance. A bond? You're telling me cops are beating us up on layaway? Yeah, I mean, yes. I know about savings bonds. I know about bail bonds. Now, which of these two bonds do you think I have interacted with? Uh, I'm gonna pass on that question because I don't mm -hmm. know you very well, say. Okay, good answer, good answer, good answer. It was savings, thank you so much. Yeah, it's a totally different system with these bonds. We call them police brutality bonds. Police brutality bonds? You borrow the money and then you pay back with interest over a longer period of time. So banks are profiting off of police brutality in black and brown neighborhoods? Yes. Wow. But a couple of cities in particular use these police brutality bonds pretty frequently. Chicago, who has, you know, lots of police brutality settlements in general, uses these bonds all of the time. Maurice is right. Between 2010 and 2017, Chicago bought over $700 million in bonds to pay off settlements. But because of interest and fees, that ended up costing taxpayers $1.7 billion. Damn. During that same stretch of time, Chicago closed half of its mental health clinics and 50 public elementary schools. Maurice, what the hell are we gonna do about this? Well, what we do wanna stop is the police brutality. And you get there by defunding the police, which is a win-win. But also, I think you'd be surprised what some people in cities would pay to keep the police harassing black people. No, actually, I'm not surprised at all. But if I spoke to white people's wallets in a style they understand, then maybe they'd pay attention. Hey, white people, welcome back to the show. Today we're talking about how police brutality is killing black and brown people, and it's killing your portfolio. Police brutality is draining your municipal investments, over $1.7 billion in the Chicago market alone. Think about all the white people stuff you could spend that on. You could get a Peloton for Little Dakota. You could get a boat on top of a boat. You could buy at the Goop store. Hell, you can buy Gwyneth Paltrow. Stick her in your new Goop purse. So demand accountability for the police. Your ROI depends on it. Tune in next week when we'll see how much money you're losing on climate change, which according to my calculations is... Oh damn. Thank you so much, Dulce. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, but don't go away, because when we come back, I'll be talking to the legendary Bob Woodward about his blockbuster book on the Trump White House. Stick around. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. So earlier today, I spoke with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Bob Woodward about his latest bestseller, Rage. And we talked about what it's like to interview Donald J. Trump. 
Check it out. Bob Woodward, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you. You are one of America's most respected journalists, and I would venture to say that you are also one of America's most feared journalists, especially when it comes to American presidents. Your work is part of the reason Richard Nixon did not have the job for as long as he wanted to, and now your work could be the reason that Donald Trump doesn't have the job as long as he wants to. I would love to know, why do presidents still feel the need to speak to you when it seems like it's a catch-22? Well, Nixon would never speak to Carl Bernstein or myself, um, but uh, Trump decided to. It's it's kind of a complicated chronology, but I did a book. Uh, I was on your show for Fear in 2018, and Trump w- had not talked to me, and he felt that was a mistake. And we developed this during the pandemic, this odd telephone relationship where he would call me at 10 o'clock at night. I had to carry a little tape recorder around <laughs> in order to make sure I recorded it. Uh, he And for nine hours and 41 minutes. Uh, right. You dropped uh, the bombshell a few weeks ago. You have Donald Trump on tape explicitly saying that he was downplaying the threat of coronavirus because he didn't want people to panic. Do you think Donald Trump was saying it in a malicious way, or can you see his reasoning for why he was saying the things he was saying? Well, I can see from his point of view, and he said, I downplayed it. I always downplayed it. I didn't uh, want people to panic. Early on in, in January 28th, which is the key moment, that's when I begin my book, this was all laid out for him in the kind of detail that when I found out about it, I thought, oh, my God, the whole case is there. His national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, saying to him with passion, this virus is going to be the biggest national security threat to your presidency. And the deputy, Matt Pottinger, had been a Wall Street Journal reporter in China for seven years. He had deep throats in China who said, this is what's going on. And what's going on is this is going to be like the 20, uh, I'm sorry, like the 1918 pandemic, Spanish mm-hmm. flu, uh, that killed 675,000 people in this country. So Trump knew this was a top secret meeting. The doctors did not know because they were not in this meeting. There are two uh, ma- major channels of information for the president at this time. They only came together to him and uh, he failed to do his duty to protect the people. He failed to do his duty to tell the truth. You caught uh, a lot of flack from people who said, Bob Woodward, you sat on this for seven months and you didn't tell us that Trump knew how bad this was. You saw him in the news at rallies saying that coronavirus is a hoax and people shouldn't worry and it's gonna disappear, but you knew that he knew how severe it was. Why didn't you you come out and say something? It's a fair question. Yeah. Um, When he told me about this on February 7th, I knew and thought for sure he was talking about China because everything was China in January, in February. And if it had dawned on me that he was talking about the United States, of course I would have gone to the Washington Post and said, we've got to run this story. But it was May when I learned that what Trump was talking about was this uh, 
critical central ah. January 28th uh, meeting when it was laid out to him. When I finally figured it out, frankly, uh, the world knew that uh, the virus was uh, a pandemic. Uh, the world and the people in this country knew it was airborne. They knew that it was deadly. They knew if you had uh, some sort of, uh, if you didn't have symptoms, you could still spread it. So this is right, what right, Trump right. knew. And we knew we could put the the book out before the election. That's the demarcation line. So people can either accept it or uh, reject it. Uh, that's fine, but I feel uh, totally comfortable. And if you read through the book and understand the timeline, mm -hmm. uh, you, you you can see, I believe, exactly how I responded. Uh, you know, you've been privy to conversations that nobody else would. You, you've seen how presidents think. You've seen how their advisors interact with them. You've seen how, how you know, how the source, the secret source is made. Is there a difference in how President Trump as a president works? Or have you seen dysfunction like this in other White Houses and it, they just do a better job of insulating the story from coming out? Important question. Uh, certainly Nixon, the first president I worked on was criminal. And uh, the Republican party revolted then in 1974 and went to him and said, you don't have support. When Barry Goldwater said, I've counted in their four votes you have if this becomes a Senate trial. And the next night, Nixon announced his uh, resignation. Uh, some of the other presidents clearly have made mistakes, but there, as best I can tell, it's always a good faith effort, sometimes misguided, uh, but it's a good faith effort. January 28th should have been the moment the Trump presidency chained changed. He gave his State of the Union address uh, maybe a week after that right. critical January 28th meeting. And that's the uh, address to Congress. 40 million people watched it. And Trump devoted 15 seconds to the virus. And he said, we're doing everything we could. Now, if he had taken this time and said, look, they, uh, my experts have rung the bell there's some things you can do, like wash your hands, like keep social distance of six feet, don't get in a room with lots of people, and wear a mask. Right. Instead, he goes on merrily, uh, playing it down, not understanding the country that uh, he leads. Uh, it is a tragedy uh, beyond Shakespeare, quite frankly. Bob Woodward. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Enjoy your day. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, if you would like to honor Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her legacy, well, you might consider donating to the ACLU Women's Rights Project. The organization was co-founded by RBG in 1972. And since then, it has led the fight for legal reform through the courts for women's equality and economic rights. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and remember, if you need to poop, Please hold it until you get off the subway. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more.
This has been a Comedy Central podcast. <laughs>